Guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists, bringing you the best of the business. Hey, we got an updated newsletter on the dedicated website of Mastering Agility, masteringagility.org, not .com.org. And if you subscribe to that newsletter right now, OptiLearn offers 5 to 10% discount on all their scrum.org related courses. How awesome is that? And if that's not enough, we're also building our own YouTube channel. So all the discussions that you see or that you hear actually in this podcast, you can see those on YouTube. So subscribe to that newsletter, more giveaways, more discounts will be coming. Now for this week's show, we are discussing how to embrace conflict. And we're doing that in a really nice way with Trisha Broderick. And what I really like about this week's episode is how brutally honest she is. I think embracing conflict is one of the hardest aspects when working in a team. So let's hear from Trisha. Trisha Broderick, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here too. I'm excited for this. Uh, Me too. Today we're talking about embracing conflict. Some of those things that people try to dodge. You seem to be very open about conflict is actually necessary. Let's start with the definition of conflict. What do you feel is the definition of conflict? So for me, conflict is just a sign that something's trying to happen uh, or something needs to happen. Uh, I think a lot of people conflate conflict with drama, and those are two different things. And for that's why for me, it's embracing conflict. I avoid drama. I hate drama. I don't like drama. Drama is where it really is getting to a place of malicious, vicious attacks, not not, um, not reason anymore. You, you're you're trying to win something, right? Um, and and you're getting into a place of drama. That's different for me than conflict. Conflict's just something's trying to happen. Something needs to happen, and. That's a powerful thing. That's a good thing. If we're going to talk about wisdom of the crowd and diversity and things, then we should expect that there's going to be things that need to happen um, along the way. How does drama look like with you? Well, like when you're I, in your drama stage. <laughs> I like it. Nobody's ever asked me that. Um, when drama hits for me, I'm a fighter. So I will... I will try to believe that it's still conflict and like try to have conversations and try to do a couple things. But then um, I have an unhealthy habit of nothing like hit me right out of the gate. I like it. I like it. Um, I have an unhealthy habit of just shutting down. So um, for me, drama doesn't get you very far with me because I will actually cut talking to you. I will cut you from my circles. Um, it doesn't mean that I can't repair that or come back from that. And, and, and in many relationships, professionally and personally, that has happened. And in many relationships, professionally and personally, the minute I've gotten to that point, um, it's done. <laughs> and and so it, it's an unhealthy habit and that it's probably not the most productive, but it is actually my approach to when drama for me is I go silent. I I actually will just stop engaging and and there's a little bit in my head of the this isn't worth my time and now I know we're beyond conflict and I'm not going to I'm not going to engage. What can people do at such a point uh, to to aid to support you but also to reroute you back? What oh, um what could people do? So I'm trying to think of real examples professionally um I think how, and, and it's actually one of the reasons I do a workshop on this, like how you approach in that moment makes a huge difference in whether I know what, are you ready to deescalate or are you still in that place? Um, you know, Lisa Atkins refers to a model and it's not her model. I forget who the main author is, but Lisa refers to it in agile coaching called the, the conflict escalation. And when people are up in contest or crusade, they're fighting like nobly, right? They believe they're fighting nobly for something else and that they can't back down. And, and, and so if I believe you're still in that place 
and I feel I'm still in that place, I know it's not going to be productive and I just won't engage. So I think how you're approaching and and maybe what you're sharing in that approach matters. If I feel like I'm being kind of just set up like you send me a LinkedIn request, even though we're not speaking with no message, oh, I'm not taking that bait. I'm not, I'm not responding. I'm not engaging, right? Like the accidental bump into me in the hallway won't work because I, I don't know where you're at and I'm just not willing to, to get into drama. It's just not productive for me. Conflict all day long, maybe too much. Um, but, (laughs) but drama, nope. You do seem to display a very nice level of vulnerability here. How is that different from in being in such a stage of drama? Because you seem to be very open about it and really able to talk about it. Yet you seem to really push people away from what I get from your words here when you're in such a drama stage. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll, I'll, it's one of the reasons I hate the saying it's business, it's not personal. Um First of all, it's from a fictional movie. Second of all, it's about the mob. So stop <laughs> quoting it as a professional business practice, right? But I think all people come with baggage, right? We all come with different traumas. We all come with different things. And I I, I had a really um, traumatic experience. My first son passed away. And when I decided to come back to work and try to find myself, I did have to find a bigger purpose in terms of what I was doing and why I wanted to be a leader. And And with that came a lot of vulnerability because I couldn't always hold it together. I couldn't like decide what was going to fly out of my mouth or not fly out of my mouth. And and I kind of over time developed a reputation or just, I, I guess, just character in terms of being willing to not pretend that I'm perfect. I'm not perfect. Every drama I've been in, I've contributed to it in some form or fashion. I, I don't pretend that I don't. Um, but I can control what I do going forward and I can control what stories I share. And I remember having a really, um, well, actually every time I've had this, whenever I've felt like I'm being too vulnerable, too, too like exposed, I personally get worried about having everybody pity me. Like I get very, like, I don't want pity. Vulnerability for me is, is just honesty. It's just, sharing the truth, right? But in a lot of times it will generate pity. It will generate kind of this like, oh, poor Trisha. And and I abhor that. Like and I and I struggle with it. And so I'm always nervous about it. But every time I've been super vulnerable to the level that shocks people or surprises people, I always have at least one person that will say something to me after and 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 I'm thinking of one moment in particular and and you know, this is somebody I respected. This is somebody that I had no idea was struggling herself in that moment or anything. And she said, thank you. And I'm like, I just like puked my guts out. and was super like embarrassingly like vulnerable. Right. And she's like, thank you. And I'm like, for what? For humiliating myself. Right. And she said, no, I actually, if you can break and need that help, it's okay for me to need help. And, and in that moment, I, I kind of was reinforced with a moment that I had much earlier after, you know, returning to work that maybe part of my role is to be able to be comfortable enough to say the thing that others can't say. And, and I'm okay with that. Does it cause me some trouble sometimes? Sure. Does it cause some perceptions of me sometimes? Sure. But I've worked my butt off in a lot of ways to earn the trust and the the respect that I've gained so far. And, and for the most part, I think a lot of that is because I've been vulnerable along my journey that I haven't pretended being a leader is always easy or being a human (laughs) is always pleasant, especially in this world right now. And, and, um, and I have to acknowledge that my vulnerability and my willingness to be vulnerable has helped me. Like it, it helps me to own my story, to own my journey so that I can better support other people. I do think that that level of vulnerability is the core of good leadership, what separates management from leadership. Do you feel or do you agree with me that emotions, really true, showing your true emotions, the way that you feel at that moment in business 
is still a taboo at this point. Uh, uh, yeah, I would still say it's a taboo. I um, it, Half the reason why some people will say things like, it's business, it's not personal. And I always have somebody who's like, well, you know, I work with engineers. They don't have feelings. First of all, I was an engineer. I'm a computer <laughs> science grad. Second of all, change their code. You'll see feelings. Like, it's not, <laughs> like, it's, it's not the case. But third, I think there's an element of learning your emotions. I'm not going to pretend that I've always controlled my emotions. I, I remember I remember losing it once and going, what the? And I swore. And I was like, as CEO, like, I just was like, what the F is going on? And I'm like, okay, not a good display of emotion. Like, not a good. <laughs> and and so I think that's part of the hard part is, is it's good, you know, it's human to have the emotions. But I also have to learn what my impact of my willingness to share my emotions is too. And, and sometimes I'm good at that. Sometimes I'm not good at that, but I do think overall it's still taboo. Like, you know, I've cried at work and people are like, Oh, you can't do that. You've been, you know, you're an executive. You can't cry at work. And I'm like, yeah, I'm crying. Right. Um, and, and, and I hope that's changing. Um, at least I'm willing to die on the battlefield to get that to change. I mean, that's the, I, it, but it's still very much taboo right now. It's still, it is shocking to me how many of my classes people are like, well, I can't, I can't say that. I can't be honest about that. And I'm like, but they say they hire the best people. They, you know, <laughs> we have to be honest and, and it's just yeah. holding us back in many, many ways. Does it, does it mention anywhere on your job, description as an executive that you can't be crying that you can be very vocal about your about your emotions i don't think so i am curious though about that story what was the ceo's response when you had the burst out um this this ceo in fact i don't even think he would refer to himself as he oh did i lose you on the video i'm not sure are you good i'm good okay um so so the he's he was an amazing man um on many fronts yeah um so in that moment <laughs> there was this like what is going on and i think the whole room went quiet <laughs> for a second but we were able to talk through um he didn't come down on me afterwards my um he didn't he didn't in fact later we were doing something else and he acknowledged um he was grateful for my honesty so in some ways i think he he was he was a man that respected honesty and direct over correctness or right like our delivery sometimes um still wish i could take it back <laughs> still not one of my <laughs> finest moments um but i was very lucky to have at the time um a leader that understood that he how did he put it once um that he actually was Grateful for people being so passionate and still invested versus checked out and polite and proper. And and I think whether I, I didn't really realize it until this conversation right now, um, I think I've carried that forward with myself as well. I, I'll I'll take a passionate, harsh delivery over an unengaged group think any day of the week. What makes you have that choice? What makes you say that? Um, because when you're passionate and you're engaged, I can still, you're still creative. <laughs> you're still able to help collaborate in that. And, and if we can embrace conflict in a way that it's like, okay, that was a little rough. You didn't need to yell. Right. <laughs> or, or, or that scared me a little bit. Um, but there's still the energy there that's necessary to create awesomeness. And when you're unengaged, when you're willing to just go with the flow because you don't want to rock the boat, you're, I, I, whenever I'm in that mode, I'm not giving my best. I'm not showing up with all cylinders firing. I'm not, I'm not in a space where I'm being super creative because I'm not really being me. I'm playing a facade at that point. And so I'll, I'll take the former any day of the week. Perfect. Great example. You just mentioned people having pity with you. Do you feel? Do you think that's the, that's the difference between sympathy and empathy? Oh well, that's a that's a that is a big topic there for me. Um, after the death of my son, 
I experienced all sorts of reactions. And I think that most people don't mean for it to be pity, but there is a, um, there is a dynamic of being grateful. It's not you. And, and when you're trying to comfort somebody else, but still grateful that you're not dealing with it, it's very hard for it to not be received as pity. Um, and, and so I, as a receiver can know the good intentions, can understand what you're trying to achieve. But, but at the end of the day, it's, it, it doesn't always feel great. It's not the best support and comfort, um, that somebody needs, uh, in lots of different ways, whether it's personal, professional in in different ways. So I, I don't think there's always like the, I want to pity you. I think it comes off as pity when you have a sense of relief that you're not the one dealing with that problem. Really makes me think of it, about that for a second. Also, because I'm, I really don't know how I would respond. To be honest, um, I think as a parent, I mean, I was just talking to you before this recording. I have three small kids. I have no clue, a what I would do when one of my kids would pass away. I I get shivers by the sheer thought of it. Uh, but also, it must be such. A traumatic event that I have no clue how, how I could possibly empathize with you because I couldn't possibly put myself in your shoes unless I would have somewhere had the same experience. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's why, I mean, we're talking on a personal front, but I think even in a professional setting too, is, is like when you really can't empathize with someone, don't try to, right? Like, because chances are it's going to come off bad and those moments just, and I'm sorry, or how can I support you? You know, is, is your better bets. And I think at times at work, um, you know, I'm guilty of this at work and myself, like I'll, I'll see a, you know, another woman struggling at work. And I'm like, oh, I totally know what you are going through. And it's like, (laughs) no, just because we're both women doesn't mean I fully understand and know or empathize with what now there are times that maybe I can, but I have to really make sure that I can fully empathize with what that individual is going through, or focus more on just the support. I don't have to understand. And in fact, the more that I try to articulate that I can't understand, more just goes, yeah, it must really suck. Your life sucks. <laughs> um, I can't imagine being fired. Like, I, like it, it's just not, it's not a good dynamic. So, so really understanding as a leader that if you can't empathize because you really haven't been there, don't try to, in that sense, understand that your role is different. Um, you won't be able to support them in that sense. You have to support them in other ways. And and people need that multiple different types of support. So you hear a couple, say, mentioned a couple of things throughout this, this 15 minute conversation so far. So the empathy, as well as genuinity, or what's the word? Uh, authenticity, maybe that's a better word. Authenticity is the basis of constructive uh, conflict. Would you agree with that? Um, yes, I, I, I think it goes beyond that too, right? I think um, I, I would definitely say I would agree that it's the basis. I, I think learning how to not just initially react to things, and that is easier said than done. Our defensive bias and, and mechanisms are honed. <laughs> And sometimes we don't even know that we're doing them. Um, So I think there's a lot of education and understanding just how humans are defensive and how we react um, consciously and unconsciously to things. The more that we can normalize that, not normalize inappropriate behavior, not saying that. What I'm saying is normalizing that we can and are capable of inappropriate behavior so that when we go to address it and have the conflict, I'm not labeling your inappropriate behavior as you are the worst person on the face of this earth. I'm saying, (laughs) hey, you had a defensive reaction to this and that resulted in really projecting some things onto me that didn't feel great and the impact is not okay your intent might have been good, right? But the impact matters more. And so, but again, how I'm approaching that conflict is not thinking, I want to rip your face off or I want you fired. I'm approaching that conflict going, oh, okay, you're human and this is what just happened. Let's work through it. 
And, and I think that the more that we can approach conflict with that kind of wanting it to just be a problem to solve versus a battle, then we keep it at a conflict and not a drama. A couple of things there. Um, first thing, assuming that we are people and we are going into such a battle or such a... <laughs> I just like the start of that. Assuming we are people. I, I try to make that assumption often. <laughs> well, engineers seem to not have feelings. Oh, so I'm an engineer. engineer that's not a true statement. Oh, I know. Uh, but that's, that seem, does seem to be the perception of, of organizations still. And I do feel that has been the case since the Industrial Revolution, where people have been treated like resources. If you do this, then you get that. The kind of a reward system. And that, that, that's it. Uh, making people or basically taking the humanity out of the workspace and have people being treated like machines. And I think that's how we got to this point where the emotions have been taken out and Therefore, assuming that we are people, it, it sounds weird, but it's, it still is uh, relay, also relaying that back to the question before. Do you think that emotions are still a taboo? I think that has been one of the biggest troubles um, in the workspace that we have up until, uh, up until this point. Fortunately, we have people like you who are very open about that. And I've been a couple of episodes ago, I had this Atkins also uh, very open about these kind of topics. So I love that people like you are frontiering, being open like this, bringing back the humanity into the workspace. Um, I, I completely forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> That's my trick for an interviewer, right? Like I just throw you perfect. off, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that that's what I really enjoy though. It makes me think about the current state of things. Ah, that's where it was where I wanted to go. Assuming that I am a person who wants to make this constructive and has the ability to take a step back and say, all right, this I see this happening. That also means that we really need to understand what feedback is. If someone just lashes out, that's a form of feedback too. So it does require to have this ability to absorb that feedback state and, and make the conscious decision to say, I'm not going to go with my sword against the, against you in this battle. I'm going to take a step back, absorb this feedback and process this and then do something constructive with it. How yeah. can we start doing that? So there's a technique that... Um I learned from CRR Global, um, I, I can't speak to the, the main source of it right this moment. I apologize for that. Um, but it's but there's been variations. I think Esther Derby had a variation of it and things over time. And it's 2% truth. Um, I had a VP of a project management office once. Um, and, and I was working and we didn't get along. Like, we just... It, I mean, conflict had definitely moved to drama and we just, it was not, and so true to my nature, as you called out right at the beginning, right? Um, I was leaving. I was not going to stick around. This was not going to be a healthy environment, right, for me. And on the last day, she said, Trish, I want to give you some feedback. Now, I I appreciate good feedback as is the next person. And then on the same note, feedback still makes my stomach turn because I'm like, oh, what if they don't? Mine is never, my churn in my stomach is never because I want to be perfect. My churn in my stomach is out of fear that I will have let people down and that the feedback says that it's not good in that sense. Like, so, so I have my own battles when it comes to feedback, as most people do. And but I was curious. I was like, okay, what are you gonna say? Right. <laughs> and and she proceeds to say, Well, what I'm about to tell you is really gonna hurt, but you have to hear it. And I'm like, okay, that's a horrible lead-off. But now I'm analyzing her feedback delivery approach, right? And but I, I don't say anything, and I'm like, okay. And she says, You don't connect with people. And now I have a huge list of things that I will tell you I don't like about myself. I like and things that I don't think I'm very good at. But my ability to connect with people is one of the things that I'm proud of. Um like and when I do connect, I like fully invest. Like to a point that it might be slightly unhealthy. <laughs> like 
like <laughs> to the point that my husband has like he's like which Question. former colleague or direct reporter yours is staying at our house this weekend like 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 <laughs> i i really do like i get so excited about your progress and your growth and like when people are you know even if i haven't worked with you in 5 years like i'm still like strangely oddly like totally invested in you right so she does she says the one thing that could actually hurt me and i i in that moment, wanted like I felt every bit of that gut punch she was intending, right? And I, in that moment, actually had just learned this. So sometimes, like that timing's perfect. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I, I genuinely just stopped, went silent for a second, and went two percent truth. Yes, you and I didn't connect. I didn't need to address the 98% of the things she was saying that wasn't accurate, but there was 2% truth in what she was saying to me. Her and I did not connect. Now, she applied that to everybody, despite the fact that, like, my coworkers and my colleagues today have met most of those colleagues already um, several years later, right? But to her, it applied to everybody. But there was 2% truth in what she was telling me. I had I had to do the work if I'm going to be a good solid leader, right? To be able to find that little bit of truth in that statement that I can own. And I could own that we didn't connect and and I can be curious about that. Why? Like what what was that? And and that allowed us to have a discussion. I'm not going to say that we were like walked out of that room like, "Oh, we're all good." No, we were not all good. But it but it allowed us to have a conversation and what it allowed most for me was making sure I could stay true to who I wanted to be as a leader and still take ownership for things and not just be dismissive. And most of the times what somebody's saying to you in feedback, there's some small minute, maybe it's a half a percent, but there's something there that you can own that you contributed to. And, and, um, I think it's important, at least for myself that I, I'm willing to look for those things. If I'm going to be constantly challenging others, I want to be constantly challenging myself. How did you get to that point? Because that does require quite a level of introspection. Um, and maybe this is where it's beneficial for me on the vulnerability front and the self-critique front. I have no problem self-critiquing myself. <laughs> now, there's a difference and, between critiquing and really giving yourself feedback and having a good objective look. Um, but I, 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 I do seem to be able to find that. How did I contribute to this? Um, and maybe I have over the years just developed that because I've practiced it and things. But for me, I actually have more of a problem trying not to take 50, 60, 70 percent than just the two percent. Um, but I, that might be because I've been practicing that for so long. Um, but I just have to find something that I know I wish I could have done better. And. And for me as a leader, I, I'm, a, I'm about learning. And so if I'm not constantly learning for myself, I can't expect other people to do. So maybe to your point, yeah, it is something that I've just, I've done for so long that it's become a little bit natural for me, but I'm very focused on learning, um, creating a learning environment, creating a learning situation for others, creating a learning situation for myself. How can people and learn this from you, by the way? <laughs> well, it, it actually made me think of a story. Um, I'm full of stories. Sorry. Um, it actually oh, made like me that. think of a, uh, a moment where I was trying to challenge a team to experiment more. And and I'm like, it's okay. You can fail. It's not like I want you to experiment. You're not going to get in trouble. Like I, they just would not <laughs> experiment. And I was frustrated with it. And finally, one of them looks at me and they said, but you don't fail. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I flop on my face all the time. And they're like, no, you don't. And that was the moment that I realized I wasn't being as transparent as a leader as I needed to be. And so one of the things that um, has contributed to the vulnerability and the authenticity is me realizing, I used to say, if I'm doing a really good job as a leader, you won't know what I'm doing. And I, and I hung on to that for a really long time. But 
in that moment or around that time with several events, I realized that that's not helping other leaders develop because they're not realizing or seeing things. And and so I started adjusting. It's like, I'm a really good leader when you didn't realize what I'm doing in the moment, but I'm able and willing to share that going forward. And so I started like posting a Trisha's, you know, failure of the week <laughs> and, <laughs> and like putting it up and highlighting things that I was like, oop, I experimented with this and it didn't work. And, and it was actually hard to just pick one. <laughs> I wanted a list, right? Um, but just doing that became, you know, sets an example. It sets a role model and others realize that I, I'm not just saying these words. I'm not just aiming a bus at people, but I really do want this and I want it for myself as much as I want it for, for you. And I, I think that instills a lot more trust when we're asking people to be more emotional, to be more experimentational at work. Um, that's a scary place for a lot of people. And, and, and it's not enough to just say, be courageous. Like that's, that's, that's like telling somebody to calm down when they need to calm down. Doesn't work. Right. And, and so I always try to think about what can I do that sets an example for the very behaviors or the very expectations I want for others. How was the response to your fail of the week? Um, positive. I mean, some people didn't care at all. They're like, oh, why is she even putting this up? Right. Um, <laughs> and others like were checking in on it and seeing what I would put. Right. So there was, I think, a bet at one time that they were guessing what I was going to put up. <laughs> um, but we had a fun environment um, with that, that particular client or that particular company um, and, and doing those things. So I, I think it just sets more of that re- like you're human. Right. And and um, at the end of the day, when you are the manager, you have positional power, you have formal power. And if you have to say things like my door is open, chances are your door is not. If you have to say experiment, but you are not showing them that you are experimenting, chances are you're not going to get it. Um, and so that was, that was my big, like, okay, I've got to, I got to be visible about what radical transparency about what I'm doing that I also believe is good for them too. And, and some took to it right away. Some still were hesitant and were like, nope, this is a trick. (laughs) And, and, and that's okay. Like that's part of everybody's journey. I think I need to have a good look at myself too. Like the, the things that you just triggered with, uh, uh, if you have to say that your door is open, that makes me think of a couple of things that I might need to reassess as well. Doesn't this make you prone to people using that to their advantage with a double agenda too? Um, can people manipulate this? Um, yeah, so... It's funny. At home, I'm a horrible, pessimistic person. Um, In fact, my kids mock me in terms of like, just in case. And then my daughter the other day was like, Mom, everybody knows I have something because they know you pack everything, right? So in, in some ways, I'm this very pessimistic person. But when it comes to people, especially professionally, I, I don't think I do this personally. And professionally, I genuinely... Like you have to do a lot before I'm willing to think of you as evil or manipulative. And and there's so many people that others wrote off that said, nope, they're just bad. They're and and I always think about how many people believed in me before I did. How many people supported me when I was loud, brash, and obnoxious and and you know, like gonna just speak the truth and, and do it in a way that I didn't care if it was hurtful. Right. Um, and I think about how many people lifted me up and believed in me before I did and what that did for me. Right. Like it gives you a different level of confidence. It makes you want to excel. And, and so I, I think I try not, and this is going to make me sound pathetic, I think, but like, I really don't want to believe that there are evil, manipulative people. Yes. Do they exist? Yes. Will I, have I gotten busted and, and taken advantage of? Yes. I'd still do it again. 
because I would rather go in believing my colleagues, believing my peers, believing my teams were amazing than go around and try and be a leader that doesn't think that to start. And I'll I'll take, I'll eventually figure it out and then I'll probably cut you out. (laughs) Um, But, but, and sometimes I figure it out quickly. Sometimes I get blindsided and I realize, oh my gosh, this person was using me the entire time and they didn't really care about me. Or this person was actually um, talking about me behind my back and I didn't realize it, right? I'll eventually figure it out. And yes, there are sometimes casualties from somebody that's self-serving and things along those lines. But I find that that tends to always work out. And I don't want to focus on that. I don't want to focus on somebody using something manipulatively versus believing that maybe they're trying and they just don't understand why it works. And as a result, made it worse, right? Than believing that they were trying to be a jerk. Um, I, that makes you yeah. sound super optimistic rather than horribly pessimistic like what you just said. I know. It's a very dual situation going on in me. <laughs> it's the, it's the project manager in me coming out sometimes with the risk management, right? <laughs> <laughs> and now we've been we've been working in a team and we've gone through just taking taking Tuckman's model with us. We've gone through the forming stage. We're now getting into the storming part. How can we deal with conflict without making it destructive? How can we make conflict constructive as a team with so many different backgrounds, so many different personalities, cultures probably too in this world? How do we deal with that? Celebrate it. Like I remember getting assigned to a team once and he said, you're going to love this team. They never have any conflict. And it was because they didn't speak to each other. You can't collaborate collaboration is building something together. The powers behind collaboration is building something together with different cultures, different perspectives, different experiences, because that's what's going to help you build the best thing. It's the wisdom of the crowd. So I celebrate it when we get into storming. I celebrate those moments because it means that we've stopped pretending It means that the people that have those different experiences and perspectives don't just have a seat at the table, but are able to voice, have a feeling of belonging to where they're comfortable to highlight those things. And that's powerful. Do we always get it done right in in delivery? No. But I want to celebrate the fact that this is exactly why. And what we need when it comes to collaboration. And part of this is now learning how to collaborate. We confuse cooperation with collaboration a ton. Cooperation is, is I'll help you with your part. Collaboration is let's build this together. And we're not taught how to collaborate well. And And the hard part on it is even if I'm taught how to collaborate well, it's different for a different person. It's, you know, like, um, and it doesn't, and we're super skilled. Like I'm writing a book with Diana Larson right now. We're both awesome. very, very talented, skilled coaches, facilitators, trainers. It still took us several, an extended period of time to learn how to collaborate, co- co-write together to where it sounded like a blended voice, to where we felt we were each being heard. And we're both skilled and it still took us time, right? And I think that there's a, this aspect of we associate the conflict, the storming as a negative. I celebrate it because it means we're, we're out of forming, that we're out of the pretend stage, that we're, we're moving towards a direction and if we're willing and committed to figuring this out together, that we see a purpose, right, that we're trying to achieve, that that we're building as leaders the skill sets people need to be able to collaborate and, and have those discussions together, then this is what I want. I want us to have some of those discussions. Now, I, I don't want it to turn to drama. And that's where competence comes in and, and helping and not being afraid of things like um, I, I, there's a, a saying I like to do and, and I say it differently each time, but I'm, I'm more afraid of the consequences of avoiding conflict than I will ever be of embracing conflict. Unavoid or avoided conflict 
is almost guaranteed to turn into drama. It's going to Some fester. form of passion. It will, you know, it doesn't go away. And and some of us remember things very, very well. <laughs> and we pull things out from years earlier. And and those are the moments that I was lucky enough to kind of realize that very early on. And and I'm um I'm thinking of a moment. I was developer, early days in my career in the 90s. And I'm developing, and I'm the only female developer on the team, right? Because that actually is often likely right now, too. Still a thing. Still a thing. And I'm the only female developer on the team. And I remember being asked to take notes, meeting after meeting after meeting. And I don't say anything because I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be difficult. I don't want to, right? But it's eating away at me. It's eating away at me. And, and you know, there are little microaggressions that are happening that at the time I didn't know that was the term. I didn't know why it was eating away and why it was accumulating. And then I remember being at the client site, which again, early Trisha, not the best display of my de- <laughs> the emotions, right? And I remember being at the client site and we were trying to do some testing stuff and there was data entry that had to happen. And again, the lead developer assigned me the data entry and others the the hardcore development tasks. And I was like, why do I get the data entry? And he's like, I just asked this one time. But to him, it was one instant. To me, it was you continuously put me in this admin role when I have outcoded most of these men, right? Like and and in different ways. And and but in that moment, I was so frustrated. Not just by that one request, it was like all of the requests that had been coming. But to him, it was just that one request. And I started, that was like me going, okay, I can't, because I'll have a harsh startup in that moment. I'm like, no, I am not doing <laughs> like not the best, Trisha, not the best moment, right? And 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 they're like, what are you talking about? Because I wasn't dealing with the conflict earlier. And and that led to drama. It led to an escalated situation that wasn't necessary because he wasn't trying to play. I mean, most likely unconsciously, but also he was like, you'll do it and you'll do a quality detailed job. Like in, that's in his mind. I was the checklist detailed person. I'm still that person. I like my list, right? Like <laughs> I am incredibly detailed and organized but it was sending a different message to me and I wasn't honest about that. And so I very much am more afraid of the consequences of avoiding conflict than I will ever be in the moment of conflict. I'm going back to celebrating conflict. How does that work? How do you celebrate conflict? Is it like, hey, you guys are messing each other up here. Nice. Have a beer. <laughs> I don't think I have a one answer to that. I think every team's dynamic and and interaction is different. Um, I've had teams create like little awards. I've had teams, um, you know, have uh, their own ways of doing like self-accountability and, you know, failure bows and things like that. I've had teams just take a pause and acknowledge, okay, this is uncomfortable and this is exactly what we need. Um, I've had teams just update working agreements of what they're going to do when they've had conflict, um, and and how to how to how to appreciate it even in the hard moments. So unfortunately, I don't think there's like one answer to that. I, I think that kind of that varies by team and by by group, um, by organization, by by even individual. Honestly, um, some people really like the public dynamic. Some people really want private, and and I try to respect and honor that too. All right. Now tell us about the book that you guys are writing. Um, well, I don't. Well, I, I mean, to be fair, the publisher has already announced it on Twitter too, informally and very quietly. So I think I'm allowed to talk about this. Um, but it still has a working title, and, and we're still in draft mode. Um, it probably won't be out till early next year. Uh, but we are we are actually shockingly enough talking a lot about what we've been talking about in, on this call. Um, in terms of how do we break free from blame? 
Um, you mentioned the industrial age of treating people like resources and, 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 and what that means. And there's so much of that of like, I've got to hold people accountable. And, and first of all, accountability, the actual definition is just to, to account for something. It doesn't actually mean you're responsible for it. You're just giving the account or the status of it. And, and, and really, even when we try to hold people accountable, it doesn't actually get you the results. Um, instead of creating an environment where people really feel responsible, where people feel this sense of um, sense of duty and, and desire to do it. And, and so we're writing a, a book for leaders, not really specifically in the agile space and just leadership in general, of how, what kinds of things do teams need in order to build themselves to a place where they can have resiliency to really respond to chaos, to business agility, to achieve that business agility. And so I think a lot of people think of like some of the basics like purpose and, you know, it's got to have a shared purpose for the team, right? And people think about the competency and mastery of the team members. But we talk a little bit about also resilience factors such as, you know, what are those power dynamics? And, and how is formal power playing into your team's resiliency? And pretending like you're just one of the team is really probably not actually helping you in terms of building that, that team that's able to learn and adjust no matter what happens. Um, this came because there were so many teams that were really grooving pre-COVID, like getting performance, they would have been considered quote unquote high performance. They were collaborating well together. And then COVID hit and everything just blew up. And and one of the things is I think that Diana and I realized is, is there's really kind of a, not a, maybe a level beyond high performance, but there's this dynamic of really building resiliency in people and in teams. And how do you help them learn together? Because no matter, despite my desire for risks and lists, right? In this chaos, in a pandemic, and all of a sudden remote, a lot of people went back to a lot of cooperation behaviors. A lot of people went back to a lot of old lingering conflict that they just avoided because they had enough purpose to keep them collaborating together that we weren't actively addressing. And so we talk about a number of different resilience factors that leaders really need to be working with their team and building their competencies in that so that maybe we can achieve business agility in today's world. That's awesome. I think that's exactly what this world needs at this point. Looking forward to that. Now, yes. we're at the end uh, roughly at this episode, what has been the best advice that you've ever gotten? Um, I'm going to stick to the professional. Um, the best advice I've ever gotten was from my late mentor, David Hussman. And, um, I, I'm like deciding which one I want to do right now. Um, he he didn't mean to give me this as the advice. I actually don't know until we talked about it after the fact. But I always said that Dave was a person that when you were in his presence, you knew you were nowhere near his level. And yet somehow he made you feel like you were... You had something cool and intelligent and something that he could learn from. And and you felt like you belonged. And um, I modeled, after seeing him do this so many times, I started doing it. And, and we talked about it um, not too long before he passed away. And we talked about it in the terms of his advice was, if you lift others up, you'll never be alone. And I think that that's part of why we do leaders or who we are, right, is we want to help people succeed. But to think that we're completely void of our own needs is not realistic. And and there is a dynamic of, I think, when I connect and invest with people, it's it's to make a difference. But when you're making a difference, you're doing it for them, not for yourself. And yet you will walk away feeling like you got the better end of the deal. 
and because you had the pleasure of getting to hear from them. I got the pleasure of meeting you today. I got the pleasure, right? Like, like that's, you'll just never know what next door opens by lifting others up. And, and I am grateful for his example for that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think a lot of people, me included, should be wary of those those small things uh, a lot more. I think the world would look a lot better than it does right now, if we would. I agree. And some days it's really hard. <laughs> oh, definitely. It's really hard. Uh, but someday I'll be back in person with people too. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you very much again for that. Last question. Where can people find you? Where can people interact and learn from you? Um, so my my company name is Ignite Insight and Innovation, um, igniteii.com. I'm most active on LinkedIn in terms of I do, you know, a live each month and and I'll post my courses there and things like that. Um, I have a blog, just little things. Um But I'm pretty accessible, so if anybody wants to just reach out and say hi, I'm I'm game. <laughs> um, and and I'm happy to help and do little things like this and stuff. So so uh, that's but that's pretty much where most people. I don't. I'm technically on Twitter, but I I avoid Twitter a lot. <laughs> so um, LinkedIn is the best way to reach me. <laughs> same for me. Same for me. Trisha Broderick, thank you very much for being here. We're looking forward to the book that hopefully will show up uh, next week, next year. All the best with that. And thank oh, you very thank much you. again for being here. Thank you very much. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions, um, more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up But make sure to tune in again. Until then.